informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. Always appreciate being included as a part of your day. And, well, once again, there's a lot happening in the world of agriculture. We're going to do our best to dive into what's going on here today. We're going to be talking about the markets, commodity markets, with Don Rose of U.S. Commodities here in just a moment. And then in segment two, we're going to chat with Josh Linville. He's the vice president of fertilizer over at StoneX, and that market continues to be turned around by geopolitical news, of course, and farmer demand heading into 2023. He'll give us his outlook for the months ahead. And in segment three, we're going to talk with our friend John Holzman, geopolitical strategist, host of the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. He, of course, in Europe has been watching that Russia-Ukraine battle, war, I should say, there in the eastern part of Europe. He's going to give us his take on where it could go from here and what he's watching with China as they prepare to roll back some of their COVID-0 policies. But let's dive in first with the markets. Joining us on the line now is Don Rose of U.S. Commodities. And Don, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, good morning, Mike. I hope everything's going fine for you. It certainly is, Don. I tell you what, this time of year, the focus for the grain markets in particular turns down to South America. We've got that growing season happening across Brazil and Argentina. And I understand, Don, that's a region you've gotten familiar with here more recently. Yeah, you know, I've gone through that area, you know, down south right now um, for probably 15, 16 years. So, um, you know, no kind of feel more comfortable with some of those uh, practices and weather uh, down down south, I guess that's where I'm at right now. <clears throat> well, let's let's talk about what you're seeing down there. Don, are you in Brazil and how do the crops look? How are farmers feeling down there about that uh, that first soybean crop that's growing in the field? Well, you know, I think it's a crop in Brazil, Mike, you know, first of all, but, you know, it's a big growing area. I think a person has to put it in perspective. Uh, Brazil alone is like from uh, Canada all the way down to the southern tip of uh, Texas, so big area. So when you're talking about a growing area, very similar to what we have in the U.S., but uh, the northern area, uh, central, all the way down close to uh, the border of uh, Rio Grande Sol, which is a southern part, like the southern Texas type of uh, area, um, that gets to be dry and down into Argentina dry. But, you know, first of all, I think when you pull up into uh, northern Brazil, they're going to start to harvest their early beans just after the first of the year, probably more like uh, January 10th through the 15th. So our export uh, uh, potential is going to die very quickly here. Probably right now you're seeing China switch their buying habits mainly to uh, South America as they see a big crop in north central um, uh, Brazil at the present time. And <clears throat> to put it in perspective, right now it looks like Brazil's going to have about a 5.5 billion bushel uh, bean crop. Uh, maybe 5.7, and you know ours is uh, under 4.5. So um, we're worried about Argentina. They're in a dry drought uh, pattern yet, along with uh, Rio Grande Sul, southern Brazil. But their soybean production, um, you know, the government is carrying it more like at, um, well, even with a drought, maybe like 1.6 billion bushels. So, um, you know, it looks like Brazil and Paraguay between Argentina and Brazil make up uh, for the uh, losses in Argentina. So um, that's what we're seeing so far. Where are we at? Argentina is about uh, 40% planted on soybeans, about 50% planted on their second corn crop. Um, so that puts it kind of in perspective, Mike. 
It does, Don. And with so many beans coming out of Brazil this next year, that is a massive crop, five and a half to 5.7 billion beans. Can the Brazilian infrastructure get those beans out? They've been making good progress so far. Can that continue here post-election and, and everything else that's happening down there in Brazil? Well, I think most definitely. I mean, of course, the infrastructure is not nearly as developed as it has is in the United States. You know, we have very few roads and uh, that aren't in very good condition where, you know, down in Brazil, it's such a big area that to get those roads, the infrastructure in place is still work in progress. Chinese are helping them uh, from an investment standpoint a great deal. So the progress is moving uh, very quickly. And um, I think they will, uh, Mike. I think they've got the ability to get them out. I'm always worried about the uh, strikes. Uh, for example, in Argentina, their uh, interest rates are running something like 80% and their, or their inflation 80% a year, interest rates about 85%. So, you know, put that in perspective to what's going on in the United States. You really, from a producer standpoint, it's a juggling act in Argentina. <clears throat> they really use their uh, grain as a currency, if you will, because uh, the inflation rate is so rampant. Absolutely. 85% inflation in Argentina versus 7% here, Don. That is a staggering difference. But I'm wondering, from the from the American farmer's perspective, with the fact that Brazil has these beans coming, they're going to be able to get them shipped here fairly shortly. How do U.S. producers need to manage that risk ahead of the first quarter here in 23? Well, you know, I think when you look at it, these price levels, Mike, you have to be very careful. We haven't been able to uh, stick the uh, soybeans over $15 on the nearby soybeans. And I think what you're really watching is the market is just on hold. I think you can see that on soybeans at the top of the range. And um, if we have a weather pattern change in uh, Argentina, southern Brazil, you're probably in for a swift break in the uh, market. That's the way we see it. So um, very delicate up here. And when you switch to the corn market, remember um, Brazil, it looks like they also have a large corn crop coming. Now their second corn crop, yeah, is going to be harvested more in uh, mid-June through mid-August. And that's the one that when we think we're going to rally to the upside uh, on weather concerns, if they have a big crop, Brazil's busy selling their uh, corn into the market because that's their exportable uh, crop is their second crop. The first crop is mainly uh, domestic consumption for feed and ethanol. Don, does the market have a handle yet on just how big that second Safrina crop is going to be quite yet? You know, I don't think so, but, um, you know, their total crop, because uh, it's a, a long ways to go, but their total crop uh, is going to be somewhere around 5 billion bushels. To put it in perspective, you know, ours can get up to over 15 billion. Um, but remember, uh, most of their second crop, which is their larger crop, which is about three-fourths of the crop, gets exported. Uh, Argentina, <laughs> their corn crop is probably estimated too large here, but... They're close to 2.2 uh, billion bushels. Um, the uh, USDA just has not taken an ax to the crop yet in uh, Argentina corn or uh, beans because I think they think it's early. They can still get some uh, rain. And by the way, uh, Mike, the uh, La Nina is really characterized by cool Pacific uh, temperatures off the equator. Um, and I can tell you personally, it feels like the water is getting warmer to me off the Pacific. And um, that means that maybe we're in a transition out of La Nina to El Nino. Um, 
you just don't know. But I'm just saying personally, it, you know, the waters are warmer than they were last year. There's no doubt about it. And it seems like they're, they're getting a little warmer all the time. So um, being a half-way right. meteorologist, I would say that's something. <laughs> I, I would say it is as well. Don, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for this update from South America. And I don't know if there's many other radio shows. You can get a water temperature update from South America. You can here on AOA. We've been speaking with Don Rose of U.S. Commodities. And Don, thanks for joining us today. And folks, stick around when AOA comes back. We're going to talk with Josh Linville, Vice President of Fertilizer over at StoneX, about how that market is moving heading into the new year. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Joining us today, we're going to be talking with Brian Thalman. He's the Corn Board Liaison for the Market Development Action Team. And we'll also be speaking with Denny Vinacotter, the Market Development Action Team's Vice Chairman. Denny, when we think about that Market Development Action Team, what is it that they do over there at NCGA? We are just trying to look for that next thing to grind more bushels of corn feed fuel fiber we're just trying to expand bring more value for every bushel of corn that's grown in the united states back to the farmer brian what do you see here going forward we're really excited to continue our partnership we've been broadcasting in the past live from the national cattlemen uh, beef association convention we're also going to be live at commodity classic this year in orlando this monthly grind recap is sponsored by the national corn growers association be sure to tune in the first wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on aoa Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. 
Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate being included in your day today. My goodness, there is a lot happening. We just talked markets. We're going to be talking geopolitical events in segment three with John Holzman. And at the intersection between those two things is fertilizer. That market has been volatile this entire year. Globe-trotting fertilizer expert Josh Linville, vice president over at StoneX, joins us now. And Josh, you have had a busy year in the fertilizer business, haven't you? Uh, yes, we have. And the the thing is, it looks like we'll get a little bit of a reprieve here for the next maybe week and a half over the holiday season. And we're going to be hitting the ground running in 2023. It doesn't look like it's slowing down anytime soon. Well, Josh, that is certainly the case. Let's talk where things sit right now. We've seen Russia continue to throw, I don't know, grenades of misinformation into the fertilizer business. What is happening with Russia right now with the Russia-Ukraine situation? Well, obviously, the invasion of Ukraine continues to go. Um, and originally, if you go all the way back to the beginning of 2022, we thought that, that invasion was going to spell basically a story that there was going to be no fertilizer export in Russia. We didn't think anybody was going to be doing business with them. And then very quickly, we found out about March, April, not only were some places willing to do business with them, but normal exports were continuing to go. And now there's enough exports going that uh, Putin's government has stepped in and put tariffs on any fertilizer that's sold over 450 in order to help fund the war effort. So, you know, from that perspective, just from a direct Russia situation, fertilizer flows have actually continued to be solid. And that's something for fertilizer, lower fertilizer prices we needed. Uh, then the other side of it is natural gas flows to Europe. Obviously, that has not resumed. European natural gas price rates remain very, very high. And that is causing a lot of production to remain down in Europe. And they are a major production. So... From an export standpoint, solid. From a natural gas, they couldn't be hurting us much worse if they tried. And Josh, given the fact that the natural gas issues are so profound there in Europe, are we seeing European farmers, input buyers, import from the U.S.? Are we exporting fertilizer to them? Absolutely. And in a very, very big way. I mean, in ways we've never seen before. UAN is a perfect example. Um, according to the import-export data that we have looked at, starting in May, and all the way through October, because that is the last month that we have information for that's uh, um, up-to-date and accurate. Six months in a row, the U.S. has been a net exporter of UAN, just as an example. That has never happened in the history of UAN for the U.S., and a lot of that is going over to Europe. All right. What is that doing to pricing for UAN? Well, obviously, it's kept it at a massive premium. Uh, when you look at it from the Gulf of Mexico down in NOLA, we had seen the price between urea and UAN get as wide as 34 cents per pound of actual N. Now, obviously, inland prices have not seen the same. Uh, you've got different logistical avenues to move the product up, uh, different application rate costs, things like that. But when we look at it from a NOLA perspective, 34 cents is about as wide as it's ever gotten. Now, fortunately, we are finally starting to see some pressure on the uh, producer price ideas. Their values have been coming off. Not tremendously, not as nearly as much as people would like to see it, but it's at least starting to trend lower as we start getting towards this uh, prepay period. Well, Josh, I mean, that difference that you mentioned there between the port at NOLA, where this fertilizer is coming into the country, and the inland price where, fertilizer, where, where farmers are buying that fertilizer continues to be pretty different. What are you seeing inland? Do we have enough fertilizer where it needs to be? Well, I would say right now on phosphate potash, yes. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we just had a very poor fall run. Uh, that's something we anticipated. I think there's a lot of hope that at the end of the day, the farmers would step through and 
you know, big demand wipeout inventories. And we don't feel like that's happened. And prices continue to reflect that as well. But from a nitrogen standpoint, there's still more work to be done. But there's also time to do that work. So we're not, I, I would say the product is not in place. However, I would also add to the fact that I'm not worried. At this point, I'm still not to the point where I'm like, oh my gosh, there's not going to be enough supplies. You know, we've, we've cried wolf on that story quite a few times and we, it just never seems to happen. We're still very nervous on rail. We're still very nervous on uh, river shipments. But as of right now, I'm not ready to start screaming, the sky is falling. Okay, well, that's a piece of good news there, Josh. Thinking about the fall application period, how do we do uh, for ammonia applications this fall? Ammonia actually turned out a lot better than what it looked like the first two weeks of November. Um, if you look back, everybody got out of harvest, and it just seemed like everybody was just kind of like, well, I'm not in a hurry. I don't feel like I need to do anything. And so it started out very slow, and then all of a sudden the rains came. And I know there at home, it turned very, very cold very, very quickly. And the ground froze, and we were shut out. And we thought, oh, my, we're, we're in for a very, very poor fall run. And it was already going to look tough versus last fall, fall 21, biggest fall we've ever had on record. But fortunately, Mother Nature started to straighten out. It started to dry up a little bit. Uh, warmer temperatures came along. Uh, soil started to melt, give us a chance to get a secondary run. So we went from expecting a very, very poor fall to it's probably fairly close to forecast. Okay. All right. So farmers definitely got it done. The fact that it was open so late into the season definitely helped. I saw saw guys pulling gas uh, all across the Corn Belt pretty late in the season. Josh, thinking ahead to the challenges, we've still got getting that product inland to where it needs to be. River levels are still down. River freight still down. Talk about how you want to plan for this spring season as a producer up the Mississippi. It continues to be that whole possession is nine-tenths of the law situation. Um, and the biggest thing we continue to tell farmers is to continue to have those conversations with your retailer, with your supplier. The reason being is right now there's a lot of angst in the marketplace. We're seeing some prices finally starting to fall. And that's something we've been looking for for two and a half years, right? It's, it's finally starting to happen. And we're like, why do we want to buy it today? Why do we want to step forward? And I fully understand. I appreciate that. I, I, I'd be doing the exact same thing. But look at it from your supplier's point of view. Look at it from your retailer, your co-op. They're doing the exact same thing. They don't want to bring this product in and watch that price fall. They can't do that. They, they can't lose that money. So my biggest fear is that we as an industry, we wait until that last minute. We adopt a just-in-time strategy, and we're already dealing with logistics that we're going to struggle in the best of times. And obviously, we're not in the best of times. If we wait until just or we do a just-in-time demand model, it's a recipe for disaster. Okay, that is something to think about as spring gets close. Josh, while we're thinking fertilizer and its global flows, we're going to have those Brazilians getting ready to put that second crop, safrina corn, in the ground there in the spring. How do their fertilizer supplies look on hand in that country? Uh, Brazilian imports have actually looked really solid. Uh, and in fact, you could say that they are a little bit ahead of the game. And we, going back to the Russia conversation, where their tons been flowing, Brazil's been a uh, a very solid location for them. They've been a very solid destination. So Brazil's actually been ahead on some fertilizers. Um, you know, we heard stories about ports that were backed up with vessels, you know, multiple vessels that they couldn't get unloaded because there's just so many of them waiting. Uh, so I think they're sitting okay. Uh, I don't think they're in a desperation need. I don't think they're in a spot where they need to get anything anytime soon. They will continue to be a buyer. There's still plenty of demand that needs to be met, but as of today, they're sitting solid. 
All right, Josh, looking out to this spring again, we're hearing more concerns from the European Union that they don't like the Russian sanctions. Some folks are still getting paid. Could we see some additional political disruptions to the fertilizer market in this new year? Absolutely. I, I think it, I was hoping that 2023 would give us a little bit of a reprieve. It would give us a little bit of downtime, you know, a little bit of a chance to breathe in these agricultural markets. But, you know, when you look at that, you know, you, you got the European Union continuing to push back. The U.S. Canada continuing to push back. Putin continues to ratchet up his talking. I mean, now all of a sudden it's not even so much about taking it to Ukraine. Now he's talking about hovering his hand over that big red button. So, yeah, I think we need to continue to expect the unexpected. And a political, uh, you know, political stepping into the marketplace is absolutely something that could happen. It certainly is, Josh, and that might make us want more secure supplies of fertilizer. We've seen this administration trying to encourage domestic fertilizer manufacturing. Is that taking off? What are you hearing from the industry here locally? Are we going to be producing more of our own fertilizers going forward? Well, I, I know that the uh, the Secretary of Ag at the Commodity Classic, I believe it was last week, or uh, last year, when he came out and he spoke to the crowd, you know, he said, oh, we're going to invest a, a $250 million. It's a tremendous amount of money. To a normal person. And it's great that we see this administration is actually looking at our industry and trying to take steps to do better. But from this industry standpoint, 250 million is a drop in the bucket. And then they increased it to 500 million. Again, it's one of those words like this just doesn't really help us build new nitrogen plants. We don't have new, you know, phosphate reserve anywhere that we found where we can build new production there. Same with potash. So it's unfortunately, it's not going to be something that I feel goes into a older technology nitrogen facility. It's probably something that's going to be invested in green uh, production. It is going to be something that is invested in alternative sources of nitrogen. But it's, again, not something that I foresee helping in the near term. All right. No relief in the short term. We're still going to be dealing with this global market. And as Josh has said repeatedly, that means it's time to communicate early and often with your retailer. Folks, we've been talking with Josh Linville, Vice President of Fertilizer at Stonex. And Josh, thanks for joining us today, as always. Hey, anytime. Have a great weekend. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to check in with John Holzman, our geopolitical strategist friend, about what's happening across the pond. Stay here for more AOA. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the Monthly Grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Joining us today, we're going to be talking with Brian Thalman. He's the Corn Board Liaison for the Market Development Action Team. And we'll also be speaking with Denny Vinacotter, the Market Development Action Team's Vice Chairman. Denny, when we think about that Market Development Action Team, what is it that they do over there at NCGA? We are just trying to look for that next thing to grind more bushels of corn feed fuel fiber we're just trying to expand bring more value for every bushel of corn that's grown in the united states back to the farmer brian what do you see here going forward we're really excited to continue our partnership we've been broadcasting in the past live from the national cattlemen uh, beef association convention we're also going to be live at commodity classic this year in orlando this monthly grind recap is sponsored by the national corn growers association be sure to tune in the first wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on aoa You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Let's look at this market trade heading to the end of the week. Not a whole lot going on on Friday's trade with grain markets pretty much mixed right around unchanged in uh, trade as we look at quarter beans, just not doing a lot. Wheat futures, little pressure in wheat there, a little spreading between Chicago, KC, and Minneapolis spring wheat, but not a lot. Livestock trade showing a little momentum into the week's end as we see cash cattle activity pretty much steady with last week. Hog markets showing a little bit of a premium on the day Friday. Now, overall, these markets are being looked at through the uh, lens, the scope of recession fears. Supply and demand fundamentals are being interpreted through the lens that assumes a recession decreases demand and really that lens uh, it's indiscriminate in how it is applied and that's kind of what we're watching here as the outside markets wall street fears there really having a weight on the trade here keeping things pretty quiet as well as just the general holiday malaise type of action the vix trading up near 2324 throughout uh, the overnight into friday morning reflecting the elevated fear levels on wall street dollar index surging on thursday up near 105 105 and meantime we see the trade just really fixated on the predictive nature of the yield inverse and forecasting a recession leading to the stock sell-off more continued stock market pressure on the day on friday so uh, just kind of watching what's all happening in those outside macro markets and how it plays in to the grain and livestock trade we see crude oil down about two uh, percent as we work through Friday's action as well. Cord beans will be also closely watching South American weather as we head to the weekend. We'll wait for updated forecasts to see if that can drive any trade action as we get into Monday. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. information farmers and ranchers need to know AOA now back to Mike Pearson welcome back ladies and gentlemen to AOA you know we just heard from Josh Linville there from Stonex that political risk is not going away in 2023 and our friend John Holzman of John C Holzman Enterprises host of the around the world podcast in 20 minutes joins us now and John boy things are interesting around the world aren't they still yeah, tragically, but for the world, but good for me, business is booming. Well, that is good to hear, John, but unfortunately, it's booming on the backs of all sorts of disruptions. And I want to start with the Russia-Ukraine war. Josh mentioned we're going to see that impact the fertilizer industry, energy industries over this next year. Uh, you were one of the few people who thought that it would drag on this long. John, where do you see it going from here? 
Well, to start with, Mike, yeah, I mean, I think we got this right because as long as both sides think they can win, they will continue fighting. And that's what's happened, that the Russians think with their reinforcements, these 300,000 troops they've now called up with their draft, this will hit in the spring. And although that number is really about 180,000, as Stalin put it, at some point, quantity becomes quality. That's an awful lot of people to throw into the into the meat grinder. On the other hand, the Ukrainians get better and better at using NATO weapons, more efficient. Up to now, they've used only Soviet weapons. With every month, they become better at it. And so both sides have real reasons to think they can win. The two key factors as to how this turns out in the next year are outside factors. How long is the United States prepared to write a blank check to pay for Ukraine? Because the Europeans aren't doing it, we are. And on the other hand, how long are the Russian people prepared to put up with what now amounts to a draft, where this now affects every single Russian family around the block if they don't see market progress? These two outside factors of the war will largely determine what happens within the war. John, Putin has mentioned nuclear weapons several times over the past three months. Is there the thought in the international diplomacy community that he could actually use them? I think in certain circumstances, limited tactical nukes are, and I can't believe I'm saying this, a possibility. The main area would be in Crimea, which has been Russian controlled for much of its history. And if, if the Ukrainian government were to go off the deep end and attack this area, I think that this is an area where Putin would indeed do that. I think that's why he's saying what he's saying. It's to draw red lines, frantically hoping the West can rein the Ukrainians in, which I think is likely over that. I think that would be the one area. In general, I think he's just reminding us that he has them. And this is very dangerous situation, precisely because we've never had a nuclear power losing a war in its own backyard. Nobody thought that possible. It never even entered the, the equation until now. And that's exactly what we've got. And that's what makes this situation so dangerous. Nobody's thought about it. John, given the, the volatility of the situation there in Ukraine, how should, are there any things that folks should be doing to prepare? Are you buying energy in advance? Is there a wild card event like that, that that we should be thinking about right now? Well, one of the things that is happening are the Europeans, I mean, who have gotten their act together in the short run, tactically, the tanks in Europe are about 90% full, but nothing is prepared for the next winter. It's always been about, as we've talked about, Mike, not this winter, but the next one. And there they started ground zero. And certainly American shale is going to be part of the answer, along with Qatari natural gas, more from Holland, more from North Africa. It's a little bit of everything is going to be the answer. But there could be real energy opportunities for the United States in the long run, as Europe wants to move away from being the mendicant of the Russians, this disastrous policy they followed. And so I think there will be an opportunity for American shale over the next year as Europe tries to get a coherent energy policy up and running from almost scratch. John, Europeans have been con con uh, concerned, of course, about uh, emissions and sustainability for some time. They're, they're going to face some issues on the energy side. Wow. On the animal agriculture side, we've seen the Dutch government be very active in uh, shutting down livestock farms or saying they plan to shut down livestock farms. Is that driving much conversation in Europe? It is. I mean, that's an interesting issue kind of beneath the headline. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, kind of Canadian trucking issue. It was there, but you had to look for it. And if you read local Dutch newspapers, as I do, I lived in Holland for a couple of years. Um, you do see that, that the Dutch farmer is among the most efficient farmers in the world. I mean, you go there, it's an amazing uh, thing. And to have the government unilaterally talk about meeting heightened standards 
of, of kind of climate control issues by shutting down farms and doing this very unilaterally. This has stirred a backlash among Dutch farmers who are really very powerful politically. And so this is an area to watch that so this is going to play out over time. It's not been resolved, but the high-handed way the government has acted has caused this counter-reaction of farmers beginning to mobilize. And you see this mentioned in the press and worried about a little bit at cocktail parties in places like Brussels. All right, but they're not rolling back on their edicts, are they? They're continuing to press ahead. No, as Talleyrand said about the Bourbons, you could say about the EU, they forget nothing and learn nothing. <laughs> well, John, well, we've got you on the line. We've also got a lot of concerns, I guess concerns slash optimism related to what's developing in China. They're rolling back their COVID zero policy. Where does it go from here over in China? Well, they have to. And I mean, this is a standard Chinese climb down that they'll that they'll quietly without ever admitting they're wrong, because in an authoritarian government, it doesn't pay to do that. And that's part of the problem of an authoritarian government. They're doing away with the ruinous zero COVID policy while saying no one has the right to protest. So they're cracking down on dissent at the exact same time that they're lessening what's going on. The problem with China is that they haven't uh, done anything to inoculate people along the way. And so there are an awful lot of elderly people who have yet to get a single shot. So look for COVID numbers to go way up. On the other hand, it is an opening of the economy, which is to be welcomed by the rest of us. And you will see China lumber back. And of course, that was the pressure on Xi to do this, is that the economic numbers in China, the fake number, and we all know they doctor their numbers, the fake number is growth of about 3.2%. That is catastrophically low. For an emerging market and to get that number back up they simply had to open up the society and that's what they're doing so i also have tempered optimism amid the authoritarian bungling now as they open up of course you mentioned not a lot of vaccinations they're there they've been fair, fairly locked down there's the thought that deaths could start to rise is there a risk to xi jinping's political career if this reopening goes haywire I mean, there is. I, I, I think that unlikely to happen. I mean, they finally discovered that Omicron is, is not as virulent as the earlier forms of flu. And this, by the way, is normal for the flu. I've studied the flu an awful lot over the last three years. And not always, but generally, the new iterations are, are, are more uh, susceptible to being caught, but also far less virulent because, of course, it doesn't want to kill the host. It wants to live in the host. And Omicron is following this classic pattern. So there may be an awful lot more sick people, but as long as the death numbers stay within normal realms. And remember, for China, uh, killing where the Chinese Communist Party is responsible directly and indirectly for the deaths of about 60 million of their own people since 1949, their version of what's acceptable and ours might be slightly different. Uh, but unless this goes really haywire, I think that this is tempered good news with the opening of the economy. Okay, tempered good news coming there from Asia. We'll see how they reintegrate into the global supply chain. John, I want to bring our focus. Well, we've got you on the line here. Back to domestic politics. We had the midterm election here just about a month and a half ago. That new Congress will be seated coming in January. Do you expect any big sea changes in the way the U.S. approaches policy here with this new Congress? I do in the sense that, you know, given our system of checks and balances, very little will get done domestically. And you, whether you, I as a Jeffersonian kind of like that. Uh, but there'll be no more major spending bills, for instance. The party is over. The punch bowl has been taken away. With a Republican House and a Democratic Senate, not much is going to get done. In the House, there'll be an awful lot of investigations of President Biden, from Hunter Biden to COVID to Fauci at all. 
and the Senate will pass bills the House does not agree to. And so very little will get done domestically. And President Biden will do what presidents tend to do after midterms. He'll focus on foreign affairs where he has an awful lot more room to run with the football constitutionally. So this is quite normal in the historical pattern of American elections. After a midterm, if a president loses one or both houses of Congress, they suddenly discover the joys of foreign affairs. Well, with those foreign affairs, John, the, the key one I've got to imagine would be the ongoing Ukraine-Russia battle. How long do you think this new Congress is going to continue to support the war over there? Or what do you think could change as they uh, start discussing these issues? I think what will change is that there will be continued funding, but it will be less. The Biden administration won't have a rubber stamp in Congress just to approve any number he comes up with. And the funding will actually be tied to the Ukrainians doing specific things with it. Let's remember that Ukraine, and I've been there many times, is a hopelessly corrupt country. And that throwing money in without accounting for it, I just saw this in Iraq, is never a great idea. The Republicans will demand accounting. They'll demand accountability. They'll say, for instance, if we're paying for the lighting, you can't invade Crimea. I think that's a good thing. I think working together, and this is a case where divided government actually suits American foreign policy. So Ukraine will continue to get funding, but it will be less funding, and it will be more tied to American national interests. And that can't be, be a good thing, as after all, it's our money that's paying for everything. That is a good point. John, we've been talking about some of the known issues here developing in the geopolitical risk world. But of course, you keep tabs on lots of different things. What's percolating under the surface that you think we need to be aware of heading into 2023? I think one of the interesting things is what happens with emerging markets, because most of their debt is tied to dollar dollarization. And if the Fed continues to raise interest rates, as Chairman Powell said he would very candidly just the other night, um, it was daytime, your time, but night when I stayed up and watched it. Um, this could really put a lot of countries that are barely hanging on under pressure. We've already seen this with Sri Lanka going off the deep end. I mean, places like Venezuela, places in Africa could be in real trouble if the Fed continues to raise interest rates because their debt is tied to the dollar. So that's something to watch out in terms of political risk. The other thing to watch out is how unified the Europeans are about the war come the next winter. Late on in the autumn of next year, the Europeans seem to me to be split in three. You have the British who are largely hawkish about Ukraine, the Poles who'd burn Moscow down if they could, and then France, Germany, and Italy who would settle for an end of the war as soon as humanly possible because they're worried about recession, they're worried about energy prices, they're worried about that. This supposed unity in Europe, I think, as the war drags on, is going to come under more and more pressure. And that bears an awful lot of watching. And we follow that every single day. You certainly do. And folks, John Holzman here provides great insight out to all of us in the forms of the Substack and the podcast. John, tell us where can listeners go to keep up with the work you do? Oh, that's very kind of you uh, there, Mike. Uh, if, if you go to johnhalsman.substack.com, you'll find Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we talk about these very issues every single week about what's going on. Please do join our community. John Holzman, geopolitical strategist, thank you so much for joining us today. Always appreciate your insight. Good to talk, Mike. And folks, stick around. Before we go for the day, there's a couple of other news headlines that could impact the egg industry. We'll review them when we return. Stay here for more AOA. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. 
The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. This week, we're speaking with Todd Diesel, the product manager for UAN and Ammonia at CHS for a crop nutrient update. Todd, there have been some major geopolitical events happening that are impacting crop nutrient price and availability for growers here in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about what has been going on and what's the impact been on the markets? Yeah, really, Mike, when I think about the impacts of this global industry we're in today, three things come to mind. Number one, the war in the Ukraine. That's disrupted the supply of crop nutrients clear back as early as February of this year, still continuing today. What that's causing is a lot of countries to reconsider what they're doing on an export basis of crop nutrients. They want to make certain that their people have an adequate supply of food. And for that, they're holding back some crop nutrients. The number two thing is the European gas again, due to the war situation, has really spiked this summer. If we look at Europe, 10% of our global nitrogen production is there. And at one time, 70% of these plants were offline. That made Europe a huge net importer. And my third bullet point would be the U.S. has become a net exporter of nitrogen, which generally does not happen. Between now and spring, these tons need to come back into the country. But right now, we're really tightening up our supply situation by shipping a lot of nitrogen into Europe. Todd, what should a grower be doing today to make sure they have what they need for spring? Yeah, the big thing that they can do, Mike, we need a plan. And if the grower can decide what they're going to plant and what they're going to need next spring for crop nutrients, that will give us enough time to get it in place. That's Todd Diesel, the product manager for UAN and Ammonia at CHS. Todd, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for joining us here around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. 
Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. There's a few other stories we've been tracking here on AOA that I wanted to provide an update on. First and foremost, of course, is funding the U.S. government. Today, Friday, December 16th, was the deadline for the U.S. government to put forward some sort of funding plan, either a continuing resolution, just kick the can down the road, or a big new omnibus spending bill. And, well, unsurprisingly, Congress decided to kick the can. Late last night, late on Thursday night, a vote was passed by the Senate, coordinating with a vote earlier this week in the U.S. House, which passed a one-week continuing resolution. This is a stopgap measure. Effectively, all this does is keep the government operating, allows Congress to get together next week to continue to hammer out the details of that omnibus spending bill. We spoke with Jackie Fatka about that pending bill earlier this week. 12 different appropriations bills are being negotiated. This is a ton of money that will shape politics for the next year. And of course, the battle in Congress will be heated. So this one-week extension takes us to uh, the end of this next week. At that point, we'll see if this large omnibus is going to get through the hurdles or if there will be another continuing resolution. The next option will be to kick the CR out into the new Congress beginning in January. New folks will be seated. No doubt that omnibus bill will look rather different. Ahead, however, of these final discussions, we've got some new pieces of legislation being proposed. We have spoken several times with several experts on this show about the challenges for ag labor, notably immigrant labor for those folks in the ag industry who need those workers to stay operational. The H-2A visa program has come under lots of fire, and there have been a number of proposals to modernize it, the modernizing farm workforce uh, labor bill has passed the House several different times, but nothing has the legs, or has had the legs rather, to make it across the line in the Senate. On Thursday, however, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat from that state, announced a new proposed piece of legislation. This he is calling the Affordable and Secure Food Act, and basically what he's looking to do is reform that H-2A visa program. He notes that uh, farm labor costs have increased over 50% here in the last 10 years. That has led to producers scaling back operations, other folks going out of business, and this new proposal is designed to modernize that guest worker H-2A program. Now, it does have a number of bipartisan supporters. Of course, the labor issues are uh, are impacting folks throughout the political spectrum. On the uh, on the House side, Dan Newhouse of Washington, Dem- uh, Republican, and Mike Simpson, Republican from Idaho, have been working on the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, and this bill should tie in very nicely to that. Now, the Senate bill is needed. Of course, he is going to be pushing for this, and the hope, I would imagine, is that this particular piece of legislation will be included 
included in one of those omnibus spending bills as those discussions fine-tune. Looking out uh, around the world, we've also got some headlines being driven by JBS. They are in the news, not just in the United States, but also in their home country of Brazil. JBS, of course, one of the world's largest packing facilities, a processing plant of theirs, a Denver processing plant in Denver, Colorado, voted earlier this week that they are willing to go on strike. They are saying they are doing this in protest of the, quote, company's continued unfair labor practices. Uh, the union notes that they have been negotiating with uh, Denver processing since September 10th, but they have not been able to come to an agreement. And in the meantime, the union alleges that, quote, these tactics, some of which are present pending with the National Labor Relations Board have created a precarious and often dangerous workplace for these essential workers who risked their health and living during the pandemic so that we could have meat on our tables. End quote. That's from Kim Cordova, vice president of the uh, union United Food and Commercial Workers Local 7. And they have not started their strike as of yet. They said they are willing to go back to the negotiating table. However, they've got this strike vote in their pocket. And Cordova quote says the workers are saying they have told us loud and clear clear they are prepared to walk out as those negotiations heat back up. Down in South America, down in JBS's home country of Brazil, they are in a little bit of hot, wire, hot water as well. The Brazilian government recently surveyed the cattle that have been purchased by JBS. And down in Brazil, they certify, uh, is a way to think about it, cattle ranches. Are they regular, following the laws, or are they irregular? And one of the biggest uh, reasons that these uh, ranches can become irregular is they are raising cattle on uh, deforested rainforest, perhaps non-permitted uh, removals of, of uh, pasture ground and serrado. So all of those things mean that these cattle legally can't be sold. They're considered irregular. And the audit found that over 17% of the cattle purchased by JBS in the Para state of Brazil, which is up in the Amazon, allegedly came from ranches with Ill irregularities like illegal deforestation. Now, this matters because the new president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, has announced that uh, he will be tackling deforestation in the Amazon. He has amassed a quite a collection of international folks who are concerned about the health of the Amazon. Amazon rainforest, and I would imagine that this type of survey is going to give him more ammunition to crack down on JBS and other folks who are trying to secure livestock out of uh, these rainforest areas. Another story still in the news, folks, likely to be in the news for the better part of 2023. We discussed it yesterday on this program. It's the coming ban on Mexican imports of GMO yellow corn from the United States of America. We've discussed it. Mexico's planning to put this ban into effect January 1st, 2024, so just over a year away. And we're starting to see some political pushback. Two dozen farm state senators earlier this week, including the second-ranking Senate Democrat Dick Durbin of Illinois, have gotten together to urge U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai to, quote, pursue any action necessary dispute resolution mechanism. And these farm state senators are urging the ambassador to use the USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. They point to an estimate that a ban on GMO corn would shut down 83% of U.S. corn sales into Mexico. This, this issue is going to be with us for quite some time. These discussions are heating up ahead of a meeting early 
early in the new year between Mexican President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO, as he's called down in Mexico, and President Joe Biden. They will be getting together in January, along with some folks from Canada. They're going to discuss some of the issues that are pending under USMCA and this issue of corn exports into Mexico is going to be a hot one. We also had some other news. There was $285 billion rolled out from USDA in renewable energy programs across rural America. We'll see how those are going to impact rural America, whether they'll change your bottom line in future episodes of AOA. In the meantime, folks, we wish you the very best. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time right back here for more AOA. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready, and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612 You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage an advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.